Welcome to Laptop Gurus in 23, the podcast which aims to go beyond the headlines with the help of expert guests, data and proper analysis. Today we're joined by Chris Williams, freelance football journalist and Bundesliga expert. Chris, thank you ever so much for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, yeah, it's quite strange. Uh, German football journalist that doesn't go to Germany at the minute. Unfortunate, isn't it? The uh, state of affairs being what it is, no, not many of us go anywhere, unfortunately. But anyway, a perfect opportunity to have a good talk about the Bundesliga and the league that you know so much about. In the first part of today's show, we're going to talk about what's been going on at Borussia Dortmund. They're in relative chaos, I think it's fair to say. Obviously, they've had a change of manager with Lucien Favre leaving and December, he's been replaced by Edin Terzic, who's his, one of his assistants, but that's on an interim basis until the end of the season. And there's a lot of speculation, particularly around Borussia Mönchengladbach coach Marco Rosa being uh, Dortmund's target for the role in the long term. Chris, then, just on the very face of it, to kind of bring those that aren't aware up to speed, what on earth has gone wrong at Dortmund this season? Wow, well, yeah, how long have we got? Because it's, uh, yeah, it's 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 really strange because you would have expected with Dortmund's squad and the players they've got on the roster um, to be playing a lot better football than they have. They've sort of, looks like a side that's got no energy and no fight. Now, I don't know how much of that is to do psychologically, you know, not playing in front of fans. Um, Vasquez spoke on this recently. He said that how much are Dortmund missing 86,000 fans in the stadium? And I can get it to some point, but, you know, at the end of the day, these are professional footballers. They um, should be able to adapt to play in, in, in empty, sterile stadiums. There's clubs around them that have done that. Um, yeah, they've obviously changed managers or head coaches as is in Germany. That didn't really provide the bounce that was expected. I think Borussia Dortmund are suffering from the fact that um, Lucien Favre should have really gone at the end of last season. And they've gone into a season with him where expectations were he was never going to re-sign um, an extension to his deal. So he's always going to leave in the summer of 2021. And I think everybody knew that. And, and they're sort of playing form revolved around that whole elephant in the room as you rightly say chris the kind of the lucian Favre situation kind of was going on for a while last season they were only top for a couple of match days right at the beginning of the season season prior to that blew a handsome lead at the top of the table when nico kovac's Bayern were really faltering um why did his reign unfold, do you think, at the West Fallon Stadium? Well, I think Lucien Favre is, is an exceptional tactician. And I think we've seen that wherever he's been, whether that was at Dortmund or whether it was at Gladbach or whether it was his time in France. Tactically, I think he sets up a good side. But I don't know how inspiring he is as for a player, especially to dethrone Bayern Munich in Germany. And unfortunately for Borussia Dortmund, Jurgen Klopp's ghost hangs round um, Signal Iduna Park, almost like an unwanted guest because everybody remembers how good they were under Klopp. And he's almost the yardstick that every single coach is um, measured against. Thomas Tuchel found out um, that's the yardstick you measured against. His sides were quite good, actually, in, in the couple of seasons he was there. But since then, anyone who's come in be that Peter Bosch, Peter Stoger, um, Lucien Favre, um, now Edin Terzic while he's the interim coach and whoever replaces him after it, even if it is Marco Rosa, it'll always be what would Jurgen Klopp have done? And I think until Dortmund can 
win the Meisterschale again, the, the German Salad Bowl. I don't know if that will ever leave the club. As much as this podcast is about, you know, the the data and the, the kind of the, the, the tangibles, the numbers behind things and, and kind of that sort of side of analysis, at Dortmund more than perhaps most clubs, you can't ignore that kind of the soft factors and the kind of emotional elements, can you? Why is that? And you touched upon it a little bit, I think, at the beginning with, you know, not having 86,000 fans uh, at the ground every week. Yeah, it's a real strange anomaly, I think, because if you look at the data, the, the goals that Dortmund have scored, you know, they're second in the list, the assists, um, their XG and their post-shot XG is exceptionally high-ranked in the Bundesliga. It's just they seem to fall off against teams you would expect them not to. So beaten handsomely by Stuttgart, losing to Mainz, dropping points to Cologne. It's almost a, a big game mental attitude it can come and go and, and there's no rhythm or consistency there. So while they are able to put these impressive turns of runs together, they will drop points at, at, at unbelievable times and that then gives the likes of Bayern and, and Gladbach and Leipzig now the emerging second team, if you want to call them that in Germany. It gives them the ability to push on. But as we've seen frequently, not just this season, but last season and the season before, when Bayern do stumble, um, the, the challenging sides around them also seem to stumble. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? That they seem to all trip up when, uh, when Bayern have an off year. A couple of the criticisms I saw around Dortmund's play at the time of uh, Lucien Favre's departure. I think it was Mats Hummels possibly and, and Marco Royce was saying, you know, they don't, uh, they can't progress the ball quickly enough. They're very comfortable playing sort of tippy-tappy stuff at the back, but they don't get the ball forward enough quickly, uh, get the ball forward quickly enough, sorry. And equally that, you know, the, perhaps the forwards don't work hard enough to protect the back line. Are, th- are those fair criticisms? And, and what did you spot that kind of was problematic? If you think of Dortmund, you, you think of the likes of Jaden Sancho um, bombing down the right-hand side and, and throwing the ball in and Erling Haaland there scoring. That's the, the impetus of almost what's changed from heavy metal football into like heavy fast flow of football. But the reality of that is it's it sort of stumbled of late. The transition isn't particularly quick. Um, from defence to attack. Um, the the width of the pitch hasn't been used as much as we've seen in other seasons. Certainly, it's not as expansive as it was under Thomas Tuchel when there was Aubameyang and Dembele there and Christian Pulisic. You know, they were expansively wide um, players. In fact, I think at some point the, the pitch at the Westfalen Stadium was too narrow for them. That's how wide they wanted to play. Um, it sort of lost its way there. They became very reactionary, almost almost like a counter-attack side, but they're not having the speed to be able to do it. I think they scored one goal this season. Um, I'm struggling to remember the exact game it is off the top of my head. It was at home, and um, Lucien Favre celebrated it like he'd won the World Cup. It was a fast, real quick break, and it was like three and a half to four seconds from box to box and goal, but it was too infrequent, and you're quite right. He... He, he stuck with this three-at-the-back system that did them sort of okay in, in parts last season, in the 1920 season. Um, and he experimented with four in the back and a double pivot holding. But he frequently went back to that default three-at-the-back, normally shored up by Emre Chan and Mats Hummels and one other, depending on whoever was available. And that sort of flooded the midfield with four players where 
I think now Edin Terzic has come in, he's looking to bring back that 4-2-3-1, although it's not been particularly successful by, by his first game. Um, it is more of the Dortmund way. It was certainly the way they played under Jurgen Klopp. And as I said earlier, that's the marker that everybody expects and it's the type of football they want to see. So while they're going back to those ways, they still have real trouble for me keeping hold of the ball in the midfield area. They've had a, a, a myriad of problems in those midfield areas. And I think that's because they've been too slow to progress the ball forward. And then opposition sides have been able to nip in. And then when they have lost the ball in those midfield areas, because their wing backs are so high, they've in essence... Um, it's essence been a four on two, three on two, uh, and the opposition have reaped the rewards of that. When we look at Edin Terzic's reign so far, it's been a mixed bag in terms of results. What kind of changes, and, and you detailed a couple there, has has he made for, for better or for worse, I suppose? Yeah, well, when he came in after that horrendous loss for, for from a Dortmund sense against Stuttgart, he came in and the next game was against Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga and what we saw there was um, maybe a return to what had been a couple of seasons previous even under Lucien Favre to give him his credit um, there was a quicker way of getting the ball from front to back it wasn't being stagnated in those midfield areas the the wide players be that Sancho um, or be it Reina or be it Thorgan Hazard on the other side um, or even the, the high wing backs Guerrero etc they were starting to maybe play the ball a little wider, which then obviously stretches the opposition. And I think that's why Werder Bremen had a little bit of a trouble with them. But it sort of slipped back um, against Union Berlin. They were unpicked by a side that on the surface wanted it more, um, maybe looked a bit more comfortable because they were in their home stadium, etc. Um, but yeah, they what Union did is they neutralised all of Dortmund's problems. So they, in essence, man-marked some of their, their wingers out the game, really um, stopped the the breaking of the lines by by pulling in. And it became a problem for, for Dortmund to break them down. And, and after that, they've had some really good results. 3-1 victory away at Leipzig, for example. But then they've dropped points where they shouldn't have done. And you know, as they went into that... Um, what we would normally call the winter break, but half season point this se- this season because of the condensed um, time we're in. Um, you know, they find themselves now going into what is the second part of the season, and having not um, won in three games and only picked up one point from an available nine. What's the likelihood of, of Terzic being considered for the full-time role? Is, is there any at all or is it completely kind of accepted that it will be an external uh, appointment on a full-time basis? I think initially maybe they thought they could handsy flick it. If you remember, Niko Kovac was sacked and his, his assistant at the time um, Hansi Flick, who was brought in to be Kovac's assistant, took over, and well, you know the rest is history. They've hooved up every trophy they've played in, pretty much. Will undoubtedly become world champions if that tournament does in fact go ahead. Um, and maybe Dortmund thought there was an element of that. We can bring in Lucien Favre's assistant, Edin Terzic. He knows the club. He's a Dortmund supporter. He stood on the yellow wall, so he gets what the club's about. Um, but now, looking, the all likelihood is is he would be a good assistant or or maybe if he stays in the club, he will probably drop down to one of the youth academy levels. But as a head coach, his tactics aren't probably quite there. And at the moment, if they're going to have a real fight to make Champions League football, which is going to be a problem for Dortmund because that's one of the main reasons how they've stayed so so rich and financially viable is that um, 
yearly income of, of Champions League money, if that was to drop out, I, I think they'd have a problem. As well as who comes in? Does Marco Rosa want to leave Borussia Mönchengladbach when maybe they're in fourth and Dortmund are in sixth and Jadon Sancho wants out and Erling Haaland's thinking, oh, I want to be playing Champions League football. There's a lot of aspects that could go wrong for Dortmund there. Um, personally, I think they could do with changing the coach now, but I don't think that would be helpful to have a third coach in um, in one season. Yeah, I was gonna, that was actually going to be what, something I was going to ask you off the back of that. Is there any prospects then of uh, someone coming in now or is it a case of riding out this season, hoping for the best in Champions League qualification, but getting the right man in the summer? And, and who are some of the names other than Marco Rosa does seem to be a favourite that have been, uh, been touted? It is going to be what they can do now to the end of the season because Marco Rosa is the is the favourite, the preferred candidate, if you like. Um, Gladbach will not let him leave mid-season, pretty much as simple as that. Julian Nagelsmann was looked at, won't the same. Leipzig aren't even going to look at that. Um, Jesse Marsh has been touted a lot from Salzburg. Um, Salzburg or that Red Bull empire, if you want to call it that, that football empire, no matter if their clubs are in New York or they're in Salzburg or they're in Leipzig, they play a particular brand of football that has been quite successful in Germany. If you look at how successful Ralf Ragnick's been, um, look at Oliver Glasner, who's now at Wolfsburg, came from Austria. Uh, Marco Rosa, of course, came from um, RB Salzburg, Red Bull Salzburg, before he went to Gladbach. So um, there is the potential for Jesse Marsh to go there. And then they've got their eyes on some other um, some other coaches as well. And I don't know if Ralph Hassan-Huttle would move from Southampton. He seems to be doing tremendous work there, but he's another coach, um, of course, with a, with a Red Bull background who, who likes to play what is, in essence, a, a very trendy way of playing football at the moment and gets good results. Um, but I think it's, it's all pointing to Marco Rosa. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not so sure he would want to give everything up. Dortmund is still a big club. Um, but at the moment, I think they're only bigger than name um, than Gladbach. That certainly th- this current situation they're in. Of course, the second biggest club in Germany by membership behind Bayern, um, and historically, you know, they're the second biggest team um, currently in the top division. So, yeah, it, it would be a hard one. But Marco Rose is the favourite, I would say, at one hundred percent. So, working on that basis, and working on the basis that you're right, and the. Munch and Gladbach aren't going to let him go mid-season. Let, let's talk in terms of this is the one we expect to happen. What sort of coach is he and, and tactically what, what might we expect? It certainly seems, and I'll read you this quote in a second, but it certainly seems like uh, he would be a good fit for what we expect Dortmund to want. Um, this quote, I'm just taking very loose level of uh, research here but from his wikipedia which but i think it sums it up quite nicely where it says we want to be very active against the ball sprint a lot we want to win high balls and have short ways to goal we don't want to play high and wide but fast dynamic and actively forward from what we've said earlier that sounds like a, a philosophy which if not completely at least in large part fits what dortmund expect yeah most definitely i think the only difference that you would expect um, Dortmund to have is maybe a little bit higher and a little bit wider but that's something that Marco Rose has brought in he's brought in the ability for Gladbach to turn over the ball high on 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 the pitch but they do it in more narrow areas so if they are then exposed um, they're not as, as exposed as they would be with their wing backs so high um, it's a really interesting brand of football that he's got and probably key for Dortmund is he's taken players that are maybe not world class um 
but are very good players and he's he's getting them to operate at a higher level. I mean, the way they played in some of the Champions League games, for instance, they absolutely wiped the floor. Um, in They absolutely wiped the floor with Jack Dardinesque. I think it was 10-0 over the two games. So they can play high-energy, exciting football, which obviously would fit um, Dortmund to a tee. Are there any drawbacks to to Marco Rosen in terms of his, his kind of tactical blueprint or man management or or kind of experience, obviously, as you say, comes from uh, a, a background of, of coaching previously with Red Bull Salzburg, coached Locomotive Leipzig prior to that. Is, is Are there any negatives or is he the kind of outstanding fit in your view? I think he would be an outstanding fit. The The only other one who could come close to that, I think, would be Jesse Marsh. And, and that would be based on Salzburg's play and... I think everybody's seen the halftime video at Anfield where he, you know, he got his he got his players to run through a brick wall and gave Liverpool possibly one of the biggest scares they've had at home in a Champions League group stage. And I think that side of him probably puts him up on a level um, of of suitability for Dortmund with Marco Rosa. But I think it's accepted that Marco Rosa is a little bit further in his developmental stage as a coach. Um, he knows Germany inside out, of course. Um, he knows what's required to take um, or he knows what's expected of a club to, to fight against Bayern. So I think that's that's where he would he would fit in. He also seems to prefer um, that 4-2-3-1 system, which Dortmund tend to like. And of course, he alternates that with a 4-3-3 attacking, which of course is um, what Thomas Tuchel built his Dortmund model on. So Everything looks like Marco Rosa would be the perfect jigsaw fit for Dortmund. Why is the so-called heavy metal football and kind of high-intensity style so important to Dortmund? You referenced that exact phrase earlier on in one of your questions and the kind of Jurgen Klopp ghost that, that lingers around the place. Did it come from him or was it something that kind of predated Klopp and his time at the club? Because of the the sheer numbers of, of fans they've got in the stadium. They want to see exciting football. I think Jurgen Klopp sort of took on Dortmund's brand of football to the next level. He made it all about um, high energy, made it all about high press. How high can they win the ball? How quickly can they turn it over? Um, and it almost, in a way to what he did at Liverpool, once he got his feet under the table and, and he got his own stamp on the side, he sort of blew the Bundesliga away a little like he did in the Premier League last season and in the Champions League the season before that. Um, and, Offers the season before that until they lost to, to Real Madrid. So it's that legacy that fans want to be entertained uh, in the Westfalenstadion. And, you know, the simplest way to entertain fans is by playing an exciting brand of football. And I think they've got used to that. They've seen how well it worked. Um, and it's now an expectation um, that they will see that again. I think everybody understands though, that football moves on and it, and it has moved on in the last eight, nine, ten years. And Marco Rosa's style of, of exciting football, but with a little bit more tactical tweaks and perks, is, is maybe the best fit. Well, we're going to take a short break there, and then we'll be back after the break to talk about Florian Wirtz, one of the exciting, most exciting young players in the Bundesliga this season. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to this week's edition of Laptop Gurus. I'm joined by Chris Williams, football freelancer and Bundesliga expert. We've already picked apart Borussia Dortmund's uh, chaotic and 
thoroughly disappointing season. Now it's time for a more positive story, which is the form of Florian Wirtz, who has been one of the real breakout stars of the Bundesliga this year with Bayer Leverkusen, only 17 years old, made his debut for the club in May of last year, becoming Bayer's youngest ever player at just 17 years and 15 days. And he was, for a bit, the youngest scorer in the league's history after netting against Bayern a couple of weeks later, since being overtaken by Dortmund's Yusufa Makuku. Oh, blimey. He was Bayern's youngest ever scorer for a little while, scored a couple of weeks after his debut against Bayern. He's since been overtaken by Dortmund's Yusufa Makoku. And, well, Chris, just... Tell us a little bit about him to begin with, I suppose. What sort of midfielder is Wurtz? Well, he's, he's an attacking midfielder with absolutely no fear. And I think maybe that comes with the benefit of youth. Um, but since he's, he's made his, um, since he's made his debut, he's literally just covered those attacking areas. Um, he, he likes to link up with players around him. He's not afraid to take a shot. Um, he's happy to to make that pass and then follow onwards and and get into the box and score or hang around the edge of the area to score as well. But I think what makes him um, a viable attacking midfielder is literally how hard he works, especially in the right-hand um, part of the last third of the pitch. He works incredibly hard and, and, and allows the players around him to flourish and, and makes the space for them. So he's a handful Um I think a lot of people expected Leverkusen to struggle once Kai Havertz left, and this guy's come in and made everybody go Kai who. So it's um, it's just another example of how good by Leverkusen are at recruiting talent. They pinched him, of course, from down the road from from Cologne's academy, um, offered him the chance to play high level football straight away and potentially challenge for a Champions League, which is why he moved. But yeah, I mean, he's an exciting player. I mean can probably take you back to when he played for Cologne and, and he scored a game uh, in a in a youth game against Wuppertal. He scored after five seconds of the kickoff. He just thought saw the goalkeeper off his line and was like, I'll have a bit of that and 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 smashed it from just inside his own half and loved the goalkeeper. Yeah, five five seconds, five point five seconds was on the clock when it went in. Um, that's the type of guy he is. Good grief. I was gonna mention Kai Havertz because it's probably a bit of a lazy kind of Comparison is—is is there any comparison between the two of them in kind of style and and role? I would say early on for for Kai Havertz, his tenure at Leverkusen, yes, um, but he works he works just as hard defensively as he does attacking. Not that Kai Havertz didn't, and then of course. Leverkusen and, and Peter Bosch, especially, sort of converted Kai Havertz into a false nine towards the end of his time at Leverkusen, which is certainly. Um, not where Florian Wurtz is, is, is going at the moment. He likes to play in and around um, the edge of the box. And, and as I say, he, he can drop back defensively and, and plays either centrally or can even help out on the on the wide areas defending. So I think he's probably got a little bit more to his all-round game than Havertz did at his age, um, but his level to develop there. I think it's probably just a, an easy comparison because obviously they're, they're both from the same club. They both operate in sort of the same area and they're both giving results that sort of um, belie their age, really. Yeah. And in terms of off the ball, one of the graphics I, I shared with you in preparation for the show today is the is our dynamic radar from 23, which kind of takes the 
the the key kind of uh, metrics that a player in that position might be kind of judged against. And for Verts, we've got on there one of them is pressing duels attempted, and he actually comes out very well in that, and in fact, kind of meets the 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 top five European league average. Is is that something? that maybe goes underappreciated in his game when you consider his kind of attacking output and what have you, that he is quite an important, quite an important player in terms of his off the ball work as well for Bayer. Yeah, he is exceptionally important in that. And that's something that Peter Bosch has, has highlighted in, in many press conferences or post-match press conferences, especially if he does something like score a fantastic goal, um, like he did against Dortmund, um, Peter Bosch will want to highlight what he does off the ball and how that allows Leverkusen to have their shape and, and then, in essence, have their style of football. And I think if you look back over Peter Bosch's time, no matter what club he's been at, especially at Ajax, he's always had an exciting attacking midfielder to rely on. And, of course, Florian Wurz just seems tailor-made for this particular iteration of Leverkusen. He also ranks very highly in terms of through passes. He's third for attempted through passes per 90 in the Bundesliga. And in the top 25 for shots assisted. How important is he to, to Leverkusen going forward as well? Oh yeah, he's, he's exceptionally important. And for what you've what you've just mentioned there, I mean, if you look at the attempted passes he has and completed passes, of course he's first in the league for that particular area, um, as is his forward passes. I think you would look to see that he completes all of his forward passes because that's where he's most comfortable at, driving the attack from maybe if not the initial stage, to, to the secondary phase of attack. And I think that's why this Leverkusen side's exciting. People used to say that defensively, you know, they were a shambles. But I think the likes of um, Florian Wurtz's ability to, to be exciting off the ball, even in those defensive areas um, or defensive requirements, has enabled Peter Bosch to sort out um, that Leverkusen hole, really. And if you had to tell someone who's not seen him before kind of a, a moment or, or, or a, a kind of piece of play to go and seek out on YouTube or an equivalent from, from this season that kind of encapsulates uh, his brilliance in, in one, what, what would that be? I think his performance against um, Borussia Dortmund um, quite recently was, was one, yeah, was one um, to look at. Um, if you can find his goal, um, that is good after a couple of seconds. I think I think FC Kern Cologne still have um, that knocking about on their Twitter, um, but maybe as well look at not just how he scores, but there's, been, there's a, a few instances where um, you can see quite easily um, his assists as well. Um, if he had a three-game run um, earlier on, the, um, sorry, the back end of last season against Freiburg, Gladbach and Armenia Bielefeld where he had three assists back to back and I think that's a, a massive strength. Um, but yeah, the Dortmund game and potentially the, the Hoffenheim game as well where um, Leverkusen won 4-1 and he was a, a, a crucial cog in that, got himself a goal as well. And inevitably, of course, he's going to be linked with bigger clubs. I mean, we know obviously Bayern Munich kind of do tend to hoover up a lot of the young talent in the Bundesliga, but I'm sure clubs across Europe are going to be linked if they haven't already. Um, who might he suit uh, and why? And where would he kind of fit in within that team? I think he I think he personally would suit um, a move to Bayern. Obviously, he's going to be a German international um, for now until whenever. Um, Bayern like to have um, crucial German cogs in their wheel, because of where he plays in that attacking midfield area, um, you could see him 
linking up perfectly with someone like Thomas Muller or Lewandowski at the moment. Um, and of course, the exciting talents that, that Bayern have got in the likes of Serge Gnabry and, and Leroy Sané, um, Leon Goretzka as well. I think he could form a, an exciting midfield in and around um, those. So I think Bayern are going to hold out for him. They haven't really spent a lot of money on reinforcements bar Leroy Sané, and they like to do it for, for a big-name German. Outside of that, I mean, Thomas Tuchel's now at Chelsea, so I think we can probably link every single German player with, with any sort of, of possibility to Chelsea. But um, I think he, were, he would suit a side that is similar to Bayer Leverkusen. So at the moment, I could see him maybe at a side like Manchester City or even Liverpool. Um, but outside of that, I think Bayern would be the main favourites to take him on. Just finally, Chris, on, on Verts, he's he kind of, I read an interview with him where he said, you know, he wants, he kind of flattered by the Kai Havertz links and what have you and, 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 and wants to ultimately become better than him. What does he have to do? Where are the areas for kind of growth um, if if he's to do that, notwithstanding the fact, obviously, Kai Havertz is having a tough time at Chelsea at the moment. If he wants to move on to the next stage, I think it's okay having one predominant position as an attacking midfielder, but I think in order to survive at the next stage, you'll need some versatility. So can he become almost a second striker? Can he, as Kai Havertz did, can he operate as a false nine or can he tweak his game so maybe he can move a little um, further out wide or maybe even add a central midfield or defensive midfield um, position to to his toolbox? But he he's on track, of course. He's, you know, he's only 17. Remarkable, he scored against Dortmund and then had to go to bed to get up for school the next morning. I think that's still... And that's also where the Kai Havertz um, analogy comes in because he obviously had to miss a Champions League game because he had a school exam. So, um, yeah, that, that's where all that comes in. Um, but I think it would just add a little bit more versatility to his game because if he's going to, as I say, make the next step to the big club you tend to find that players at the very top clubs can play in one or two or maybe even three roles. Well, we'll leave it there on Florian Verts, and then we'll be taking a short break before we return to talk about Eintracht Frankfurt and the Andre Silva and Luka Jovic train. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Laptop Gurus. Today I'm joined by Chris Williams, freelance football journalist and Bundesliga expert. We've talked about Borussia Dortmund, we've talked about Florian Wirtz of Bayer Leverkusen and now we're going to talk a bit about two players who are banging form for Eintracht Frankfurt. That's Andre Silva and Luka Jovic. Um, Frankfurt are doing very well at the time of recording in that kind of clutch of teams, Chris, that are desperately trying to get into the Champions League places and, and, and hold on to the end of the season. And I think it's fair to say that kind of central to that run of form has been Andre Silva, who's scored regularly this season after impressing on loan from Milan last season. He got 16 and 37 uh, last term. Just talk to us a little bit about, uh, about Andre Silva first, because it was... A tough time he had at Milan, had a very good record for them in the Europa League, but you know struggled for goals in Serie A after signing from Porto for quite a bit of money, I think about 40 million euros. But he's obviously done well at Eintracht Frankfurt and, and signed for them permanently now. How has he kind of got out of that funk and really kind of found his, his goal-scoring form again? Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. And sometimes I think players make their way to a club and, and it fits them like a glove. And 
obviously he's not just come in and that's happened by um, pure coincidence. Of course, Frankfurt do play under Adi Hutter. They were looking for that goal outlet that I think that's what was missing for them. And um, Andre Silva's come in and done that. Um, you know, his, his goals in the Bundesliga and, and his assists as well that, that he comes up with. I mean, he just seems to be everywhere. I was lucky enough to commentate on a game not too long ago and Andre Silva just seemed to be everywhere, terrorising defenders. Um, he's maybe... I think he's his best in the box. In the box, his movement um, and his spatial awareness and his positional play is just next level. Um, he's certainly one to keep an eye on. And I think that's helping him um, a lot um, with being able to be almost the right position at the right time. It's a natural thing for a forward to have. And he looks like he's rediscovered that at Frankfurt. And I think that's probably down to the way that Adi Hutter sets his side up and 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 he's allowed to flourish with with a partner, be that um, Bazdos previously or Luka Jovic now. Well, you've said two things there that I'm pleased to hear because they very much uh, kind of add credence to what I was going to suggest, which was firstly looking at his uh, his XG map for this season. All of his goals have come in the penalty area, and almost all of them are kind of high value chances in very central areas of the penalty area. He's exceeded his XG per ninety total by a nice amount, third in the Bundesliga at the time of recording for goals scored per 90. Is this a case of slotting into a team that are creating good, high-value chances that the, the sort that he and any good striker thrives on? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's key for Adi Hutter's style. He's, he's not one of those that encourages his players to shoot from anywhere. He likes the ball to be progressively brought up the pitch and then put into this dangerous area um, in and around that six-yard box or potentially that space between six-yard and the edge of the 18-yard box. Um, and that's where Andre Silva just seems to be at home the most. His reading of, of of defenders, of opposition defenders, his reading of where the goalkeeper is, um, it, it, it's all key. And it's quite strange that his players around him know his best ability, which is the ball into his feet. Um, doesn't really score that many headed goals. Doesn't really have that many headed attempts. I mean, your metric shows that he's 12th currently in the Bundesliga. And I think um, the teams are, uh, sorry, the, his players and teammates around him know that just put the ball into his feet and he'll score. There's no need to loft it in the air and give the defender a chance. Talking of players that do probably need it lofted in the air and, and to be given a chance and to tie up one of your earlier points, Baz Dost obviously moved on now but played in a two with Andre Silva he's six foot five the man that we're going to talk about in a minute as well Luka Jovic not, not small by any means but only six foot how how does that work for for Andre Silva in terms of did he thrive on playing with a big kind of archetypal big man or or is it kind of is he agnostic to the, the sort of strike partner he has and, and how important is it to his kind of success that he has a strike partner because Frankfurt seems to have tended to play uh, with a front two for much of this season. Yeah, I, th I think that's why he's been able to prosper so well as he does work um, that relationship with his, his fellow strike partner, you know, whether it's um, Bazdos that's gone or whether it's Luka Jovic that's come in now. There needs to be that relationship and that looks to have, have almost started firing for a minute. Luka Jovic came onto the pitch um, in, his, in his now second time um, back at Frankfurt but prior to that Bazdos yeah I don't know if he'll miss his height it, it wasn't like 
Um, it wasn't like a, an Emil Heskey flicking a ball on for a Michael Owen or, or anything like that. It wasn't maybe as rudimentary as it sounds or certainly not as 90s football as it sounds. Um, maybe the fact that Bazdos was so so tall, he's got that ability to hold the ball up a little longer. Um, but Luka Jovic is just as strong and, and will be able to do that. And to, to give him his due, you know, Andre Silva is, is quite adept at holding on to the play as well. So I think it's going to be interesting the next few weeks, but it's certainly started off in the, the right vein of form for, for the two of them. I mean, Frankfurt had to sell Bazdos because of the you know the offer that they've got, the fact that they're not playing in front of, of fans. They are very clever with their money. They've just snuck in to the top 20 clubs in Europe in that um, Deloitte Football Money League. So they, they are aware uh, of how to balance the books. And I think... Again, Luka Jovic back. Um, there may have been a few people stepped back into the bush in Madrid when they saw how well you know he adapted straight away coming off the bench. Um, it's a, it a real strange one. Just going to ask that why why did Bazdost move on? I should say not you know sort of being prolific necessarily, but a, 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 a thoroughly decent return of fifteen goals in forty three Bundesliga appearances before he joined uh club brugger what why it was the what was the offer what was the the price do we know i'm um, not off the top of my head no but I mean, frankfurt uh, like to keep um finances as much as they can i mean there's nothing on record but andre silva um is believed to have cost them around about 3 million euros and it's pretty much a, you know a, a bit of a deal um one player goes one way one player goes the other way so they like to keep their their figures close to their chest, but it was something that Freddie Bobic said he couldn't turn down, um, and he has to put the future of the club on on record for that. And um, I think you can only applaud them. Freddie Bobic has got this strange ability to sell players like Sebastian Haller <laughs> and um, for for a lot of money, um, Jovic as well. Um, he's got the ability to to turn them over um, and almost replace them with somebody either you haven't heard of or you think, well, he's not really going to do very good because he struggled at Milan and he's not really hit the same heights from when he was at Porto. And all of a sudden they bring um, Andre Silva in. They smash that opportunity to to make the um, loan deal permanent. They take up that option to buy very quickly. I think they saw that it was too good to turn down, especially after what they'd lost. It was something similar with uh, Luka Jovic, wasn't it? They did. Uh, am I right? I'm right. I think I'm right in recalling because he was on loan initially, and they knew full well they were going to be able to sell him at a profit if they took up the, the the option permanently a couple of seasons ago. And obviously, so it proved because Real Madrid came in and paid about sixty million euros for him, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, again, that's Frankfurt uh, are a big club. They're in a, they're in a, a, the biggest finance city in Germany, um, but you know they haven't been religiously in those European competitions, so they need to be able to balance their books. Um, and I think that transfer helps them. Certainly, that transfer and the Sebastian Haller transfer helped them. Um, and and as I say, Freddie Bobic has just got this ability. A lot of people give Michael Edwards credit for what he does at Liverpool, but I don't think Freddie Bobic gets as much credit as probably he should because I think he's operating at an even higher level. No, it certainly sounds like it. Well, let's let's talk about Jovic for a bit. Got 36 in 75 in his first spell, as you mentioned, was a, you know part of a fantastic front two with Sebastian Allaire and, and when Niko Kovac was doing very well at Frankfurt previously. Didn't work out for him at Real Madrid. Now, I don't know how much you've been able to watch of him at Real Madrid. I suppose people, no one's watched too much of him because he just hasn't really played. But why why did that not work out? Because on paper, that looked like quite an exciting 
uh, signing for for Madrid and you know maybe a change in profile someone who was a bit of an up and comer rather than being already an established um, star in, in in the kind of top five European leagues. Yeah, it was, it was. This is a real strange one, and I think we've noticed that quite a few of the players that have left Frankfurt um, to go on to what you would naturally call bigger and better things haven't really hit that ground. Um, I wouldn't say he was too early in his development to to go to Real Madrid. He's twenty three. You would have expected maybe for him to take a little bit of time to adapt, and then you know by the time he does, you're looking at getting into those sort of prime years or prime building years especially for a center forward um maybe he was just not completely utilized correctly maybe he wasn't mentally able to to make that adjustment but yeah it, it was a very strange one and i mean you know um eden hazard struggled at, at real madrid it's it's a big club to go to i think the badge weighs very very heavy and and then you've got to find yourself into a team that's full of superstars and he's just he just found maybe the pressure a little bit too much because as soon as he came back um, and as soon as he started playing Bundesliga football, you know, he's firing goals um, on the half volley like he's never been away. Yeah, absolutely right. It's been, uh, he's just picked up the baton pretty much immediately, hasn't he? Three and three so far. And I'm sure by the time this comes out, he'll have added to that tally. What What is it about uh, Jovic at Frankfurt that, Fits and and what's the how does his relationship with uh, or how has his relationship with Andre Silva worked in the early in the early weeks playing together? Yeah, it's um, it's a good one because when um, when he, he came off the bench to to get that brace against Schalke in what was his first game back, um, Frankfurt had lined up with just a, a central striker. They'd gone a three four two one, so you'd have expected maybe it was a like for like, but but it wasn't. Um, Adi Hutter changed the system, brought off um, one of the the two players behind, and and slotted them in as a pair, and that pretty much opened <laughs> opened Schalke up and and destroyed them. So um, it was it was that it was that turn point where Eric Durm came off and was able to to hook up um, in those forward areas with Silva that that he gets those two goals. So I think stumble might be the wrong word but maybe Adi Hutt has stumbled upon a relationship there that's given instant success um it looks to be an exciting one and of of course once again um he, he was able to to do the goods against Armenia Bielefeld um before the before the half season um turning point so yeah it's it's been it's just been strange because I was I was in the um Amazon highlight studio for for that Schalke game and nobody expected Luka Jovic to to do what he did when he came on straight away and everybody was asking the same question that you just asked me Tom why why couldn't he do this at Real why couldn't he do this at Real Madrid if I was chatting with Kevin Hatchard on air about it why 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 has this not happened at Real Madrid and neither of us really had an answer just on just on Jovic for those who haven't perhaps watched too much of him, what didn't you know, weren't necessarily aware of him in the Bundesliga the first time round, as I say, probably no one has seen too much of him in Madrid. What sort of striker is he? Because he's he's six foot, but in my mind he's not a you know, particularly big striker, but at the same time he certainly doesn't lack, I don't think, in the kind of the physical stakes either. Yeah, that, that's a great analogy. So you would expect him not to be a Peter Crouch because I don't think many people are that tall, but he doesn't have that presence. Maybe a little bit like Silver, and this will be interesting for me to see how that relationship develops. Most of his 
um, goals and, and goal attempts coming in that area between um, you know the the penalty spot and the six yard box and, and maybe just the left of it as well. So it's in that special little area that traditional centre forwards like to operate in. Um, so that's that's where he likes to play and that's where he likes to to use his strength and that's where he likes to score his goals from. And it's going to be as I say, it's going to be interesting because they are quite similar, but maybe they'll hook up that relationship on the training ground. Addy Hutter's very tactically. Um, top coach, so I'm sure he'll, he'll iron out any problems that those two may have. And just finally on, on, on Jovic, is there any possibility, given what you've said about uh, Freddie Bobic, is there any possibility that they'll be able to do something for him in, in the long term? I'm sure Real Madrid, given how quickly they tend to move on from players and their kind of need to bring in capital to spend on the rebuild of the squad I suspect but also the the ground is is there any possibility that there's something that can be done long term is there any desire or is realistically the asking price likely to be way out of uh, Frankfurt's ballpark yeah I mean you would expect that Real Madrid would want to recoup some of that um, 60 million euros that they outlaid for him um, that's potentially what could put um, Eintracht Frankfurt off but I'm sure they will be looking to see if they can make it permanent um, if you look at the, the the different companies that give market values for, for players at the moment, he's anywhere between 15 and £20 million, pounds, depending on who you look at. Um, that would be slightly out of Frankfurt's normal range where they play in. But if Luka Jovic can help them get into the Champions League, all of a sudden you know, the ability to spend maybe three or four million euros on a player um, becomes a reality because if they make that Champions League group stage, they only have to win two games to recoup that money back. So um, I think it will all depend on how and where Frankfurt finish. Um, it'll, it's it's going to be a difficult one, but I'm of the opinion personally that I think his time at Real Madrid is over. I think you get one chance at Real Madrid and if you don't take it, um, you, you moved on very quickly. I think you only have to look at James Rodriguez who... Um, went to Bayern and then went back to Real Madrid, was moved on quite quickly to Everton, where now you know he's, he's flourishing quite well. So I think, unfortunately, for, for Luka Jovic, or maybe fortunately for him, depending on the way he wants to look at it, I, I think he'll be moving on at some point. No, I absolutely agree. And perhaps if he keeps scoring the goals and catapults Frankfurt into the Champions League, he might be able to help the club raise the money to sign him permanently. Just finally, Chris, in terms of going the other way, potentially, um, you mentioned to me, when we were talking about what we were going to discuss, topics on this show with Andre Silva, there's likely to be interest from abroad, from the Premier League. I think you said who and where would who is interested, or who's likely to be interested, in, and where would where would be a good fit if he was to be on the receiving end of a big bid this summer. I think anyone um, worth their salt in the top six um, Premier League should be looking at him because everybody is quite rightly focused on Erling Haaland at the minute, who you know is a tremendous goal scorer. But if you want to buy him out of his contract at Borussia Dortmund, you're going to be looking, even under the current climate, 80, 90, 100 million pounds, which a lot of clubs are going to balk at at the moment. Um, Eintracht Frankfurt will do business with teams for maybe half of that. Um, and so I think that will make a lot of ears prick up in a Premier League. I certainly think he would be a good replacement for Sergio Aguero, I think, uh, on a current form. Um, should 
Jurgen Klopp want to take Liverpool in a different direction and play with what more of a regarded centre-forward if Roberto Firmino is going to be used less or tactics change to utilise him somewhere else. I think he could be a good fit at Liverpool. Um, if Leicester are going to look at maybe replacing Jamie Vardy at some point, I think that's probably a transition that could go very well for them, depending on where they finish in, in the Premier League season. Um, Chelsea, of course, are always on the lookout for talent and will snap it up wherever they can. Um, I think he would probably suit, this might sound a little bit strange because of the way Frankfurt play, if Tottenham Hotspur moved Harry Kane on, I think Andre Silva should really be on their radar because he, you know, he's got those attributes, uh, maybe not at quite at that level that Harry Kane's at, but he's got those attributes in the box that make him a natural finisher, which, of course, is something that Harry Kane's lauded for. No, absolutely right. Well, Chris, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you ever so much for joining us on today's edition of Laptop Gurus. If you aren't already, make sure you give Chris a follow on Twitter. It's at Chris78Williams. And whilst you're at it, do follow 23Sport. It's at 20Word3, the, the number, sport. Never miss an episode of the show by subscribing via Apple, Google, Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And finally, if you want to find out more about what we do, just drop us an email, info at 23.sport. In the meantime, take care and we look forward to speaking again soon.